Great. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Let's pray this evening. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to uh, just to gather and to enjoy your goodness Uh, tonight. I pray that your word would be preached well, um, that you would speak through me, and that these wouldn't simply be my words, but they would be your words for your people. And so bring a word for your people this evening, those who you have you have specifically brought here for whatever reason, Jesus. You want to you do something in their hearts tonight, and uh, I ask that you do it uh, for your glory. I pray that uh, my voice would hold out tonight, Jesus, as it seems that it's a bit scratchy, so help me with that as well. Jesus, uh, now as we open your word, we give you uh, this evening as an as a offering, as a gift to you. Um, may you just do with it as you please. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, my name is Trev. Uh, I am a city group leader as well, and I'm also the pastor here at Urban Grace Church. And if you're a guest this evening, I'm really glad that you're here. It's great to see so many new faces out in our evening thing. We're still in the process of, of learning um, what this evening service is about, and we're grateful you have joined us. Um, if you would like to turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter uh, two, and if you don't have a Bible, actually, would you raise your hand and one of the ushers will hopefully grab a Bible for you. Uh, I don't see any ushers back there, but uh, perhaps we can get someone to, to grab a Bible if you need it. So just raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. If that's your first Bible, why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and keep that Bible um, if you need that Bible. Uh, we hope that you would read it as well. Right, <laughs> right there. Sweet. Right on. We're in Joshua chapter 2, and Joshua is the fifth book uh, of the Bible. Um, It's right after the book of Deuteronomy and right before the book of Judges. If you're unsure where that is, go ahead and look in uh, uh, in the table of contents. It should help you out with that as well. So uh, what what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read the story, and then I'm just going to talk about the story um, as we kind of read our way through it. So with your finger there, I just want you to... Uh, before we even get into it, I want to ask you a question. If you want to ask you a question that, that only you could answer, but have you ever received unlikely grace? Have you ever received unlikely favor from somebody that maybe you didn't know or didn't expect? Let me tell you about an experience for me where I experienced, I believe, grace in the least likely of places. So if you can imagine, this is about eight to ten years ago. Uh, we're actually living in the city of Calgary. Uh, we're in, I think, a two-bedroom apartment at the time. We can barely make ends meet. Um, when I say that, I really meant that uh, because we had just finished up a pastoral position and I was working every job that I possibly could. I was up at about 3.30 in the morning to deliver papers and then I went to work at 7. And so I was probably a little bit under the gun, a little bit stressed, and what happened was is I would, I would get any work that I could. So on top of those two things, I worked for my father-in-law in little odd jobs, and one of them was cleaning up um, pr- various properties that he had. And so one of these properties, like this past week, had a bunch of trees on the property, and they needed to be removed, and they needed to be taken to the dump because they were old. And so I had this truck, and I had built some sort of like wooden contraptions on the side. So I couldn't really see in the back of my truck, but it was high enough that I could just throw the wood in the back or the trees in the back. It was kind of a long, it was about a 15-foot tree, and I just kind of crumpled it in there. And being tired, I just wanted to get to work. And so I remember driving out on Edmonton Trail, and I look, in the ba- I look behind me, and there is a BMW uh, racing up behind me and stops at the light, and, and the guy comes walking right up to the door and he says, your tree branch fell out of your truck. I ran over it. He was probably falling too close, but didn't really want to say that because he had nicer hair than me um, at the time anyways. And, uh, and I said, I didn't, I didn't know. And he says, yeah, both of my headlights for the dash, I don't know if many, many of you probably drive BMW, so you already know this, but um, underneath uh, it's very close to the ground, and it wrecked both sides, both headlights. Uh, BMW has decided not to make parts cheap at all, 
And so he said, these are not cheap parts. Um, it might be totaled, um, but I think actually I just need to replace these two headlights. And him knowing a car, he was actually a car dealer, so he knew how much these were, and he said they're $250 a piece. It's a $500 bill uh, for me. And so I didn't know what to do. That's basically the extra money that I was earning delivering papers. So I was extremely discouraged. But um, I sent the first $250 in the mail to him. Um, and then the next $250, I, I asked him to s split it up. And the next $250, I said, uh, can, we, can we put this to the end of the month? The end of the month came. I didn't send it in because like you and, 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 and like a lot of us, we think these problems go away when we don't do anything about them, right? Remember that? I'll just pretend it's not there, uh, and then this will probably go away. He probably won't call. He probably won't ask. Uh, he did. He phoned, and he said, where's my $250? And I said, uh, I don't really have it, um, but I tell you what, um, it's my fault. I don't know what to do, so uh, I'm going to write a check, and then I'm going to pray that God somehow delivers this $250. <laughs> in the next couple of days so the check doesn't bounce. And I drove there with the check in hand and I got a call somewhere on Sarcy Trail and it was this man and he had called back for whatever reason. He says, you know what, I've been thinking about this and I think you should probably feed your family before I get new headlights, so let's call it even. Um, you don't owe me any more money. Totally blew me away. I remember weeping on the way home, wondering how in the world is it that out of all the Christian people I knew, I wasn't receiving any grace from them, but from this totally unlikely source, totally unnecessary place, totally just, just out of the blue, someone gave me grace that I just did not deserve. It was my fault. Uh, he did nothing wrong, I don't think. Um, he may have been falling too closely. It's still my fault. It doesn't matter anyways. I want you to think about that situation of unlikely grace because this, this evening, uh, there is a story in the Bible, um, it's, it's one of many stories, I think, of unlikely grace. A story that you just don't expect God or anyone to really move in this person's life. And uh, we're in a series called Covenant, and it's in the book of Joshua, as I've stated. And what we're, what we're dealing with here is the reason why we called it covenant is because this, this whole story of the book of Joshua is about the fulfillment of a covenant that God made with a, a man named Abraham. I'm just giving you a little bit of background here so you can understand why we call it a series and where this really is in terms of the whole story. In, in Genesis chapter 12, God gave a man named Abraham a promise. It says, uh, go to the land I will tell you and I will give you that land and I will make you a blessing. I will bless you and make you a blessing to the rest of the world. At the time, Abraham had no kids and there was no way that, that he could kind of receive this blessing at the time. But he believed God at his word and he just started traveling. Like literally, he didn't have a place to go yet. And over time, God revealed to him, we're not totally sure how God revealed to him where the land was, but one of the things that God had said to Abraham was the land really is the land of Canaan. Um, if you have a, a, a Bible map um, and you look up the land of Canaan, it's, 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 it was presently occupied. That, that's basically what I'm trying to get at is, is the land that was promised was presently occupied. So it wasn't like this, this back four acres that no one did anything with. It was actually full of people who worshiped a totally different God. And, and Abraham goes to this land and then he passes things along. About 430 years go along in time. And finally, it's time to actually enter the land. And they do have to enter a military battle in order to do so. And, and really, that's a, another topic for another day. I know that's a big question mark for people. Why would a, a loving God send um, military people in to, to destroy a, an entire people? But actually... Um, this is, this is what happens. I want to I show you this particular part of, of, the, of the, uh, the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, God tells Moses, the second after Abraham, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. 
that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. So this promise that was given for the land, uh, he, he said, you literally can't take it yet. And the reason why you can't take it yet is because I want to give these people a chance to repent. Canaan was not exactly an innocent nation, if, if, if you can understand that. They weren't the worst nation. I, did a, I, I emailed a, a scholar friend of mine and asked, was Canaan the worst nation at the time? And he said, no, actually it wasn't. It was, uh, there, was, there was some pretty bad nations. There was Egypt. Um, there were some other nations. Uh, the Babylonians were kind of in there. Um, and, and there was basically some really awful people at the time. But the Canaanites were one of these people that actually really opposed God. And God said, I'm a loving, gracious God, and I, I don't want to judge you for your immorality. I don't want to judge you for the way that you are against me. I actually want to give you time to turn around and, and see if you will receive the grace. And he gave them a fair amount of time, 430 years. And so 430 years go by, you would think, like after 430 years, you would say that's a fair span of time to give somebody to say you're sorry, don't you think? And so it's not exact, I know this doesn't answer all of the questions you might have about why God would do this, but it gives you some background that God, this isn't God just making a rash decision as to, oh, these people made me mad and so I decided I would kill them all. That's not what's happening. What's happening is this long process of God allowing for repentance but just continual denial of who god is they hated god they hated god's people they hated the way god's people lived they hated everything about israel and whenever they got a chance they tried to destroy israel and so canaan isn't exactly neighbors the other thing you need to know is that it's not as if israel and canaan could go in and live peacefully in the land they are actually two religious opposites and so there was just no possible way that they could do this but anyways, the reason why I say all that is because Rahab, the main character in our story tonight, is from Canaan. So God has charged um, Joshua, who is now the military leader of Israel. He's been passed the leadership baton on from Moses, and he's been handed this baton, and he's now supposed to go into the land, and he's going to lead the charge. Now Joshua was, was one, of the, one of 12 men who had previously gone on a spy mission about 40 years earlier into the land to spy out Canaan and to see what it was like. And so Joshua was actually two, uh, one of two people who when they went into the land said, this is great land, God's going to give it to us, it's full of produce, it's full of livestock, uh, it's a good land, and besides, God promised us this land and God always makes good on his promises, so let's do this. And 10 others decided that they didn't want that. Uh, they were scared of what God had promised. And so they said, no way. And God said, actually, you're going to now have to wait 40 years. And I'm going to let the people who wanted to go into the land go. And you're going to have to die off before we move to the next step. And so we're here now in Joshua at the next step. I know that's a, a lot of background for the story, but it's really hard to understand the depth of our story without giving a little bit of background to what's going on. And so Joshua now, uh, having pre in the previous chapter, been given the charge to uh, the people to believe God's word, that they can go take the land, that God will be with them, that God will give them victory. Uh, Joshua acts on that faith and says, I want you to go into the biggest city in Canaan, I want you to go into the strongest city in Canaan, that is Jericho. We'll hear about Jericho again in chapter 6. Jericho is the military fortress for all of Canaan. It's where all the technology was poured. It's where the walls were thickest. It's, it's the, it was the most indefeatable city that there was. And Joshua sent two spies into that city and said, I want you to go spy in that city, do some reconnaissance, See if it's 40 years later, if it's still the military city that we think that it is. And so that's uh, starting in chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Shittim is, uh, is the name of a city that means two acacia trees. And I know you're all laughing, and, and my take is, should have stuck with two acacia trees. It would have been easier for those who teach the Bible later on. 
And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Obviously, we don't have very good spies going on, do we? Um, as, they go into, as they go into the city, and the, the first place they go is, is to a house where there's a prostitute. Now, I say not very good spies. Actually, I'm wrong. They were very good spies in, in that sense. They went into a prostitute's house because actually that was very strategic and probably one of the only places in the entire city where strange men could enter and leave the house early in the morning, late at night, have no questions asked. Does that make sense to us? It's actually fairly strategic for them to do this. And, so, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So although they make a strategic move to go into the house of Rahab, um, every scholar said, even though there's, it, it's kind of risque, even though it's, it's like, what are two spies from Israel doing in a prostitute's house? They say nothing sexual ever uh, happened. They, they don't suspect that that's what happened based upon the way that it's written, even though uh, clearly they, they, they go into the house. But they're not that good of spies because very quickly they find out that these, peop- these guys are here. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. False. She knows exactly where they're from. Check credentials at the door, don't you? Isn't that, isn't that wise? And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. In those days they had flat roofs and that's where you would lay out all your harvest to dry it. And flax was this kind of, well, it's a hard to break down kind of grain. And so it, it's a big long process of drying um, and, and wetting down again. And so she, she hid them underneath this flax. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now what we have here is we have two spies stuck in a prostitute's house while the whole city is looking for them, and these spies are spying out a city that they want to destroy, and the city, the people within the city want those spies destroyed. Can you sense the tension in the text? I mean, this is just, everything can go wrong here about this text what's amazing though is is rahab who's who's a prostitute she's in a fairly shady business well to to be truth be told um it would be shady from israel's side but on the canaanite side they actually had temple prostitution and so it was probably she was serving uh she had very religious purposes for serving the way that she did seems strange to us i know but that would that would have been the culture and yet in spite of the fact that Rahab is part of her culture and a prostitute and lies, she actually seems to be on the side of Israel. They have obviously heard, because behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. They know what's happening. They know that Israel is is on the march. They know they're going to try and destroy before the men lay down, starting in, again in chapter 2, verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now wait a second here. This is a woman who's deeply ingrained in Canaanite religion and she knows the stories of Israel probably better than Israel knows the stories of Israel. She has somehow heard along the way she is more biblical knowledge than you or me would have had. She knows that God had somehow miraculously saved Israel uh, through Moses when, when, they went, when he parted the Red Sea and they escaped from Egyptian slavery. She knows of a previous battle that happened where the, the kings uh, 
Sihon and Og, <coughs> excuse me, had been defeated by Israel in very convincing fashion. She knows this. And she says full out, I think your God is the one that really matters. I think your God is the one who is greater than any of our gods. She continues, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our lives for yours, even to death. If, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, and for, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Very convenient, don't you think? And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. So they didn't actually have to leave the city via the gate. They could lead, leave through the wall, which would have been very unusual. And then the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. In other words, basically, when they come in to take the land, if anyone touches this family, there's going to be trouble. But if she tells her city and her city officials about what happened, then all bets are off. And they're free to, to take out this woman and her family. But if you tell this business of ours, they say, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers returned all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned back home across the Jordan. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. A story that really shows, um, it shows a lot of faith from a lot of different areas and it shows such an unlikely story of grace and really that's what we're going to talk about this evening as we, as we close this thing out. We want to we talk about what we can learn from this particular text and this is probably one of my favorite text in all of Joshua because of this great unlikely story of grace but also this amazing faith that is active faith and so it brings up this this question of of what is real faith this text brings out this important question that helps explain Christianity very clearly now this is not always the case with the Bible but sometimes you actually have someone else make a comment in another book of the Bible on a particular story, and you get some insight. And so all on its own, I think, we, we kind of look at that and say, oh, really cool story. But here's what's amazing. James, the brother of Jesus Christ, he actually writes about this very thing. He writes about Rahab. And what James is doing is he's, he's describing this issue uh, called, he's, he's describing this tension between something called faith and something called works now if you're brand new to christianity or you don't know about christianity or even if you do uh, this is still something that you need to really understand faith is is believing something you cannot see or prove faith is trusting in something that you cannot yet see or prove that's what we see in the text we see that rahab says says she believes in something that she never personally experienced for herself. Some of us, we're, we're waiting for personal experience before we believe. I would say, you can have faith in something that you have not yet personally believed. You can also disbelieve 
something that you have personally experienced. But faith is believing in something that you cannot prove or see yet. Works are... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Works are very different than faith. Works are very different than faith. Works are the things that we do for God, the good things that we do for God. We do bad things against God, but works are what, how the Bible describes the good things that we do for God. Some, some would s- misunderstand Christianity, and, and there are two ways that some people understand Christianity. One is faith. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ. That if I believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is, if I believe that He is a Savior, I believe that He is the Savior, I believe that I am a sinner in need of that Savior, I believe that He is God become man, I believe that He actually came to this earth and pursued us. If I believe that, then I'm a Christian. I would say yes. But I would also say that that faith is not true faith unless it actually transforms your and my heart. And so there are works that go along with every act of faith. Now, some would would believe that it's all workspace, that it's all about the things that we do for God. Some would say that Christianity is really about a bunch of people that gather together that talk about doing good things for God and they're trying to do a bunch of good things and they think they're better than everyone else. If that's your impression of Christianity, that's actually wrong. Some people do think they're better (laughs) than others. But that's not the true definition of Christianity. No amount of good works, good things done for God can earn you favor with God. No amount of doing good things for God, no amount of giving to God, no amount of helping other people in God's name, no no amount can bring you any closer to God. It's actually a gift of grace. And so there's these two things that go on, these two battles that go on in our lives. One is where we believe in in particular things. We believe that Jesus is who he says he was. But then we say things like, so the things that I do with my life for God don't really matter. Well, that's not true. We do believe in Jesus Christ, but what you do does matter. What you do does matter a lot. Then there's others who would say, I'm doing a lot of good things for God and so hopefully God will notice this and he'll bring favor to me and he'll bring me closer to him. And I would say, if you do not believe that all of the things you do for God could not possibly bring you closer to God, then you have a true understanding of works. But faith, real faith, faith like Rahab always brings about action. And so Jesus, Jesus' brother James actually lays this out in the book of James. And I actually think I want to I read the whole text because I think it's much, uh, it's, it's much more helpful to read the whole thing. And what James is doing is basically saying, I want to I talk about faith here. I want to talk about the connection of, of faith and works. And I want to talk to you about the, the highest level of faith. And I want to talk to you about the lowest level of faith. And so this is what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. It's not just limp. It's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So let me stop and explain this. Believing that there is a God, even believing that Jesus Christ is God, is not enough. He says the demons actually believe this as well. The spiritual world believes that God is who He says He is, but they don't, they don't, that belief has no action in their life and it doesn't do them any good and they're condemned to hell. Do you want to be shown 
the scripture says, you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then here's our text, our commentary. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Isn't that amazing? That if it's true that we receive everything we can receive by grace, that there's nothing that we can do for God that can bring us closer to God, that everything that we receive from God is an act of His grace and mercy, isn't it amazing that He would allow the Scripture to say, yes, but that faith, if it does not turn into action, is dead. It's not actually real faith. And this is the big question for us. We say we believe in God. We say we believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. We say that we believe that He did die on a cross. We say we believe things like He paid for my sins. But has that faith turned into any action at all? What's fascinating is that God actually uses Rahab the prostitute as an example of having good faith. I mean, this is crazy. If someone walks into our church as a prostitute, uh, present prostitute, and says, um, you know, the, the things that Rahab had said, and then we said, well, that's the example of faith, wouldn't that seem scandalous? I think it would. I think it would seem scandalous. And James is saying the top-rung faith hero is Abraham. There's no one who had to expose, you know, give greater faith. This man was given a promise by God, a God he didn't even know yet. And, and he, he left, he packed everything up, and he took off, and he followed God's promise. And then, he said, and then there's Rahab, bottom-level faith, barely has any faith, hardly any faith deeply ingrained in her culture, doing everything in disobedience to God except for the fact that she acted on the little faith that she did have. And we're told that is the example of faith to follow. I find that remarkable. And I find that encouraging. And throughout this text, we see this faith in action. We don't just see faith from Rahab, faith in works. We see faith from the spies. I mean, the way that they talk, it's like, hey, by the way, just so you know, when we come into the land, we're going to destroy this city, but you're going to be okay. That seems either really arrogant or very faithful, don't you think? And they come back and they say, we're going to take the land, Joshua. It's ours. God is going to be with us. Question for us this evening is, what does your faith look like? If we could monitor what your faith looked like, would we see your faith turning into action or would we just simply see your faith being a set of beliefs that you have that doesn't really affect any other part of your life? Would we be able to see that your, the way that you do your work is a result of what you believe about Jesus? Because Jesus says that His truth about Him transforms our hearts to the point where everything is affected that the truth about Jesus is not just a set of lenses, that Christianity is just not a set of lenses by, by, by which we see things, but it's a, new, a pair of new eyes by which we see everything differently. See, when, when the truth about Jesus changes our heart, the Bible says we are regenerated. I know that's a weird word to use. The Bible uses the word regenerate because it wants to give this understanding that, that regenerate literally means born again. So back to the 70s and the Jesus people movement where they use the phrase born again. And Jesus actually said, you must be born again. You need a new heart. You can't just change a, a few things. You can't just tinker a little bit with your belief system. You just can't add in some good moral things from here and from there and from everywhere and expect that that's going to be Christianity. You need a brand new heart. And when you have a new heart, everything changes. 
And so you don't just be, you don't simply just come to church. You actually kind of want to come to church. Not because you need a gold star on your fridge. Like, hey, I went to church this week. But because you, you want to know more about Jesus. Because you want to hear how much Jesus loves you. And you, you start to read your Bible a little bit. Because you just want to know more about Jesus. You start to hang out with people who help you come to Jesus. Before you thought they were crazy people. Now you actually want to be around them. That's what happens when you get a new heart. It's just like, I remember very clearly, um, uh, when I first got a, a, a new girlfriend. Some of you can maybe relate. Or new boyfriend. You find yourself liking things you did not like before. Like you like a new band that you hate previously hated because they like a new band. They have this band. You go certain places that you used to hate because now you want to be with them and so you actually go those places. You want to eat foods that you never ate before and you don't want to eat foods that previously you loved. Why does that happen? Because you have a, a change of heart. Something happens in you that changes you become a parent and suddenly um, you literally long for sleep like you never used to. You used to think sleep was just easy to come by and then you had a baby and sleep's not easy to come by anymore and you crave it. Why? Because you have a change of heart. You, 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 I've heard people say, well, I'm not really a kid person. And then they've had a kid and then they're like, I was like, are you a kid person? Oh, I love my kid. I'm a total kid person. What happened? You had a change of heart. That's what, that's what happened. Something in your heart changed and was warmed up. That's what happens when you become a Christian. When you believe and you trust that Jesus is who he says he was, something happens in your heart and something changes. You are born again. You are born anew, as Jesus would say. And so what does Rahab's faith look like? Well, this is, this is where... We can learn from her. When you're born again, you do exactly like Rahab. You actually begin to trust in God's work and not your own. So Rahab did not trust in God's work. That's the first thing we see about her faith and the reason why her faith is something to model because Rahab did not simply hear the stories about Jesus. She did not hear about this covenant God who... who, who was, was able to go into the land and win all these battles, she actually acted on that in spite of the fact that she was Canaanite and she could have very easily turned the tables and said, hey, if I'm going to die, at least I should die with my family. But instead she acted and she said, hey, I, I, don't, have, I don't bring anything to the table, but if in your God's mercy you would save me, just 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 please. I noticed that she didn't try and excuse her sin. She didn't try and say, well, you know, truthfully, I couldn't help it. I'm part of the Canaanite culture. And so, hey, I'm just part of the culture. It's not really my fault. I'm actually a victim. I mean, what is that? That, that sounds like a, something that we would say today, isn't it? We're victims of our culture. There's not much that we can do. I can't help it. Rahab could have easily said that, but she didn't. She said, I believe in the, the covenant God of Israel. I believe in that God. And I'm going to act upon that God. What else about her faith can we emulate? She acted on what he believed. she believed. As I just said. Thirdly, she feared the God of Israel more than she feared her own culture and beliefs. What does that mean to fear God? It simply means to be, cons be more concerned about what God thinks than about what you think or anyone else thinks. This is a big one for us. Fearing everything but God is easy in our culture. I don't think we struggle a lot with people that fear God too much in our culture. I don't think any culture struggles with that very much. But Rahab literally said, I, I think your God is, this is, this is kind of the, almost the playground argument. My God is bigger than your God. My dad's bigger than your dad. My dad's better than your dad. This is Rahab saying, your dad is better than my dad. Your God is better than my God. Your God is better than my culture. 
your God is stronger and I'm, I'm going I'm to act upon your God. The question for us is simply, what does your faith look like? Is that what your faith looks like? Do you trust in your own good works? Do you trust in the, the things that you do for God? Do you trust in this big pile of great things that you do for God? However good they may be. The Bible says all of the good things that you have done are still not good enough. They're still not perfection. Some, some of you are like, well, the things are not that bad that I do. I would, I would say, well, wh- what if the definition of bad was, was changed to not just the things you did against God or to disobey God? What if they included things like things you should have done but didn't? Anyone have a large pile of things like that in your life? Like, like I should have done this. I should have given this to this person. I should have talked to this person. That's a, that's a big one for me. It's, it's so easy. I, I should have loved this person in this way, but I didn't. What if that was included in the bad things? What if also included in the bad things that you had done um, was all of the ways in which you thought about getting away with something? What if that was included? Bible actually said sin isn't simply the external things that you do. It's, it's the internal things. It's the way that you feel about people. And murder and, and, and theft and adultery are all things that, that happen in our hearts first before they ever happen with our bodies. And that's where the real sin is. What if that was the, was the pile of bad things? And some of you are literally operating, I, 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 I'm asking you, some of you might be operating upon this idea that I hope the good things in my life outweigh the bad. And my advice to you is, the bad things in your life will always outweigh the good. That's why you and I need a Savior like God who what? The next part? Gives unlikely grace. Gives unlikely grace. I love this story. I love this story in Joshua because it is the story of a woman who literally does not deserve to receive grace, but I think just because she asked, God gave it to her. There's nothing morally righteous about her. There's nothing great about her. But she receives this unlikely grace. And, and sometimes we look at this and say, well, I'm not a prostitute. I'm not involved in Canaanite religion. And so I'm not that bad of a person. But the reality is the Bible actually describes all of us in a similar state to Rahab, that we have disobeyed against God and we have nothing really but a pile of things. We think we've done good for God that just aren't good enough for God. And we need the grace of God. We need Jesus Christ to save us. We need to admit that we're sinners because otherwise we have no hope. And let me tell you how the story of Rahab ends. And not all stories end well, but this one does really because Rahab actually is, is not just a, she's not just a kind of a good example for us of, of the combination of faith and works, but she, she's actually in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. And so Jesus Christ, we believe that he was a historical figure. And if you, if you can turn in, in, you don't need to turn there because I'll, I'll show you the verse here in a bit. Sorry, let me go back. In Joshua chapter 6, it says, But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So they came true on their promise. They swore that they would not hurt her if she basically didn't tell anyone what was happening. And they came true on that. What happens is, is Rahab doesn't simply live kind of with Israel um, she doesn't simply live off to the side of Israel, but she actually gets a chance to marry a Hebrew man. And so she comes out of this prostitution lifestyle, a hating God lifestyle, that just believes God is who he says he was, and he allows her to enter into the story. And what's amazing is she marries a Hebrew man who then they have a son together, and that son's name is Boaz. 
and Boaz, well, let me read it for you. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Rahab had a son who had a son who had a son who was David the king. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, David the king is the king. He is the king that everyone longed for. He is the king that was after a man after God's heart. And then David wasn't the best king that Israel ever had, though. Jesus was the best king that Israel ever had. And, and David, sorry, Jesus is in the line of David. And so we see this long history that in the story of God, God was pleased to involve a prostitute from Canaan. Give her unlikely grace. Bring her into the community of God's people and then have her play an important role. And so when you get to the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, that's exactly what you find. You find in Jesus' historical lineage a story of a prostitute who believed God was who he said he was. It's an amazing story. In Math, that's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And the reason why I, I love this story so much is because I think there are so many people that are part of our neighborhood and part of our church and part of our community that feel like they are unlikely recipients of grace. They, 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 they are in our communities and they are the kind of people that would say, I don't belong. The stuff that I have done in my life, the sexual past, that I have in my life is nothing compared to Rahab's. There's no way that God could ever recover me from what I have done, from the places I've been, from the things I have said, from the ways that I have thought, from the actions I have had, from the lives that I have messed up and ruined, from the trash heap of a life that I am embarrassed of. There's no way that God could redeem me. And this story says there is absolutely a way that God can redeem that and use that. What does he ask for? He asks for you, just like Rahab right now, act in faith. Act in faith. Don't just hear how good Jesus is. Don't just say, yeah, that might be true for someone, but act. Believe. Believe. And I'll call the band up as we, as we close, out, close this out. And as the, as the band comes, I want to ask you some questions. Are you one of those people that feels like you are too far out of the grace story of God? That there is just no possible way that God could use you or save you because of your past? And I would say, the grace of Jesus is greater than any sin that you might have committed against Him. He wants you to believe in Him. There are some of you here this evening that perhaps your response to this is, I'm actually a pretty good person. I'm not like Rahab. But the reality is you actually are like Rahab and you're just too proud to admit that you are a person who needs grace. There are also people in your life that perhaps you believe in the grace of Jesus. Perhaps you love the grace of Jesus. Perhaps you know that you are in a likely recipient of grace but even though that grace has come into your life, it hasn't transformed your life to the point where you look at everyone else as unlikely recipients of grace and you don't act gracefully toward them. And the reality is, the Scripture is very clear, you need to act upon that faith. If you believe God is a God who chases people like Rahab down and saves them, if you believe that, what He asked you to do is to turn around and chase down the people in your life who are the unlikely grace recipients. And so some of you simply need to think about the kind of people that in your life that perhaps they're the people you just never possibly could think would come to have a relationship with Jesus. 
mean, think right now if there's one person in your life who you're just like, there's no way, not only is there no way that person would, would come to church, but there's no way that person would ever come to Jesus. There's no way that person would ever turn their life over to Jesus. And as you think about that person, just remember that if God could chase down someone like Rahab, he can chase down that person and he can use you to do it. And for those of you who are still struggling with the whole I- idea of, of, of everything that's going on this, this evening, I would say simply this. Faith is believing in something that you cannot yet prove or even see. And perhaps this evening, you don't need more information about who God is. You just need to trust God for who He is. You don't need more information about how God works. Truthfully, it takes a lifetime to understand how God is and more because He's so big and complex. You simply need to trust and take that step. And we want to give you that opportunity this evening, something we do every week, morning and evening. We celebrate what we call the Lord's Table, uh, the Lord's Supper. You may know it as communion. These are, these are symbols of of what Jesus has done. This is, is the simplest possible way we could say this is what Jesus has done. First of all, we have bread. This represents his flesh. This represents him coming to you. This is proof that he pursues. Just like God pursued Rahab, he pursued us by coming to this earth in the flesh. And so we remember that through the bread. So when you pick up the bread, remember this is a symbol of Jesus chasing after you and showing you his love for you. But then we, we also say, then we, we dip the bread in the, in the wine or the juice, depending on your conviction. And what does the wine or the juice represent? It represents the blood, because if Jesus just comes to the earth and hangs out amongst us, he just still doesn't solve all the problems of a relationship with God. And so the penalty for sin was death, and he says, I am going to do something that you could hardly imagine, which is instead of you having to pay the price for your sin, I will pay the price for that sin and that's symbolized in the cup and that symbolizes his bloodshed his sacrifice on the cross and if you do not believe that this evening we would say don't bother taking the elements not because we don't want you to take the elements but because honestly these aren't magical elements that by by taking them you suddenly believe all these things and everything is merry and cheerful but, we, but I would say, if you don't believe, friend, what would hold you back? What is holding you back? What is holding you back? Tom, would you lead us? And the rest of you, come and take as you felt, as you feel led.